you have served in the past or currently serving, would you please stand? Awesome. Stay standing, if you will. And uh, I need a couple of Shetler kids or a couple of Ponstein kids. Stay standing. Don't sit down yet. I need a couple of uh, youngins there. A couple of Ponstein and Shetler kids. Come on up here and help me out, will you? All right. You see all those folks standing? Uh, we had uh, Sarah had the kids make some cards for you to thank you for your service. So go ahead and take that basket. Darcy or uh, Sydney will let you be the captain there. All right. You walk down and let everybody pass those out to to our veterans that are standing. All right. And let's give them another big hand. We appreciate your service. There you go. Take a handful and go and present those to the to the gang standing. We appreciate your <laughs> Logistics isn't my forte. All right, there's still one in the back. Still stay standing if you didn't get one. There's one. There's uh, Mr. Thomas there in the back. Anyone else standing that didn't get one? Mr. Snyder not get one. Get one right there in the back row. There you go. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, gang. We appreciate it. And again, thank you, veterans, for your service to our country. We appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. You even got a little microphone with you. I should have you up here preaching instead of me. All right. So Mike Babcock said that I uh, I can preach a shorter sermon because there's fewer people here. So we go by minutes per capita. Right. As a number of people here. Um, Now, I had that video clip shared with you ahead of time because uh, 50 years ago, actually this weekend, like the 14th to the 17th of November, uh, there was a battle fought in Vietnam. And it was the the first battle that was really fought with American regular soldiers and Vietnamese regular soldiers coming face to face in battle. And it was also the introduction to the world and to our country, if you will, of Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore was uh, portrayed there by uh, Mel Gibson in this. I believe it was 2002 film. Um, And Vietnam, as we all know, is not very popular of a conflict, battle, war, whatever we want to call it uh, for our country. In fact, many soldiers would say when they came back from that war, they weren't treated very well. And it was a very difficult time for our country. Many didn't think we should be there. Just a lot of conflict. Um, but the people that went there and fought there when they came back, they still had to deal with the same things that any soldier would have to deal with in battle. And this is, if I can have a favorite war movie, it's not for the weak of heart or weak of stomach, um, but uh, We Were Soldiers is one of my favorite war movies because it gives this true account written from um, the words and the mindset of the guy that was actually there, Hal Moore, about what happened on that day as he and his soldiers were flown in by helicopter, dropped in this hot landing zone where they were outnumbered about five to one and had to somehow hold this ground. And as you watch the movie and you watch this guy as he's leading his troops, some things that just absolutely pop out. And the biggest thing about it was just his preparation in going into what he knew was going to be a very difficult and awful situation. He was quoted in the movie and I believe he's quoted in his book as saying, there's always one more thing that you can do. Three strikes and you're not out in this. You keep going. There's always one more thing that you can do to get an advantage over your enemy. But the things that we see in him as he prepares for this battle that they're about to go into and almost what would seem to be an unwinnable battle, 
is that he prepared them emotionally for this. You saw in this clip that he prepared them to say, listen, there are going to be some people that die. And in his training exercises, he would have a copter come down and he would run up and say, bam, you're dead. What do you do next? What do you do next? And he trained them emotionally to be ready for what they were going to have to deal with when they got there. He trained them. He prepared them physically for it. They did a lot of training and getting ready for what they would have to endure when they got out there into this hot landing zone, really not being able to sleep. I imagine they probably didn't get to eat or and had limited amount of water as well. And he had to train them physically as well. He trained them as far as leadership goes. And he said to them, listen, you need to learn the job of the guy that answers to you. And you need to learn of the job of the guy above you so that if something happens to them, we can continue on with the strategy of what we're trying to accomplish. And he also worked with them emotionally when it came to just dealing with family. There's a clip in the movie where he's standing next to a guy, his wife's giving birth, and he has to help prepare this guy that he may not be coming home to his wife and his kid. And as I was thinking about this movie and its passage of scripture that we're in this week and this whole idea of the exit strategy, it just brought to mind to me that we have to be prepared for the enemy. We have to be prepared for the enemy and what fights are going to come our way. We're in this series called the exit strategy. And I hope by now, after a couple of weeks of this, you've understood that this phrase, the exit strategy, we're attacking from a few different angles The first angle, of course, is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to his enemy. He's going to be crucified on the cross for your and I's sins. He's going to be buried and he's going to raise again three days later. And he's told his disciples this. So we know that to be true in God's word that he shared that already with his disciples. But as he's preparing for that, he's getting ready for this exit strategy. Things have to be in place for him to make this divine appointment for the cross. And part of that exit strategy was to uh, expose for the world who the light is in Jesus. And part of that exit strategy, as we looked last week, was understanding that Jesus is Lord and preparing for the king to enter. And then another part we're going to look at today is the preparation for the enemy, as the enemy has to come out and accuse him and take him to the cross. So we have the whole angle of Jesus is going to be exiting this world, the greatest exit of all time, as he ascends to be with the father. The other aspect of this exit strategy, though, as we pointed out last week, is that you and I, as we receive Jesus in our hearts, as we give our lives over to him, as we surrender to him as Lord, as opposed to ourselves as Lord, we have this exit of death from our life. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Death no longer has a hold on us as Christians, because when we surrender to Jesus, he's already fought that battle. He's already died for us, his blood covering our sins so that we don't have to pay for our sins anymore. And this exit of death from our life comes into place when we accept Jesus as our savior. And the third aspect of this exit strategy, I'm going to talk about a little bit later, but it really has to deal with the things that happened on Friday night in Paris, France. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But I want to take a look at our passage of scripture and there's really two sections of it. And I want to look at them separately and then bring Excuse me, bring them together at the end. But the first part is I want us to look at this whole idea of being prepared for the enemy. We need to be prepared when the enemy attacks. So let's look in Mark chapter 11, if you will. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 20. It starts like this. As they pass by in the morning, they meaning Jesus and his 12 apostles, 
they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Now, if you remember last week, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He went to get figs off this fig tree that wasn't supposed to be producing figs at the time. And he cursed it and he said, may you no longer ever produce fruit. And we looked at that as being judgment that God had on the Israelites and on the leaders of Israel as they were not listening and not bearing the fruit that they were to be bearing. Okay, so we they come back across this fig tree as they're coming back into Jerusalem from Bethany. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, Jesus, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And you almost wonder if Jesus kind of stopped for a second and said, why are you so surprised, Peter? (laughs) Or if he stopped and thought to him and said, all right, Peter, I want you to not only consider what I said to the fig tree, but what else have I said on this journey? What other lessons have I shared with you? In wanting Peter to remember, okay, wait a second. Jesus said that he was going to go and be handed over to his enemies and die on the cross and be buried and raised again. And you wonder if Jesus was just looking at him and saying, okay, one, why are you so surprised? And secondly, think about all the other things that I've said also, Peter. They are going to come true also. And that this whole thing may have been becoming more real to Peter. So he saw the fig tree. Um, Rabbi, look, it's uh, the one that you curse is withered. And then Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So if we look at what Jesus is preparing his disciples for as they walk into Jerusalem, he points out to them four things in this in these few verses that he wants to equip them for and prepare them for. And we say, why, need, why would Jesus need to prepare them for the enemies that are going to kill Jesus? Well, if they kill Jesus, who do you think might be next? His followers. If they're going to be persecuting Jesus as he's standing there and these 12 guys are as close to him as could possibly be, who might also be in danger? When you look past Jesus being exited from this world and he's giving this commission to the rest of his disciples to go and tell what might they need in their heart, this preparation for the enemy. And so we have these four things that Jesus is going to help prepare them for the enemy and what they're about to face. And the first thing that he tells Peter after Peter says that about the fig tree is he says, have faith, (laughs) have faith, have faith. Peter says, Rabbi, the fig tree that you cursed, it's dead. And Jesus looked at him like, Peter, have faith in God. Have faith in God. And we have this whole word faith. And the best definition that we find is in Hebrews 11, verse 1. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. People speculate as to who the author may be. When Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is being assured of the things that are hoped for. And a conviction for things not yet seen. It's an assurance of things that are hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Faith is believing that all the promises that Jesus, that God has said will come true, will come true. It's having an assurance of those things. No doubt in our mind that they will come true. The things that we were instructed will come true. And it's a conviction that the things that I cannot see really are there. Faith. 
And you can't talk about faith without going to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we have this whole list of people that we kind of call the Faith Hall of Fame. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the author goes to great lengths to bring up all these names, mostly or if not all of the Old Testament that he lists and the great faith that they had and that through their faith, they actually were saved because Jesus hadn't come at that time yet. And so these people were saved because of this great faith that they had. In about verses 17 and 18, there's a story of great faith that really answers what faith truly is. And that's the story of Abraham. If you'll remember Abraham back in Genesis, he was called out of his land by God. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be the father of my people, which are now the Israelites, right? And I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in this place. You're going to dwell there like an alien. You're going to live in tents and kind of wander here and there. But it's going to be the place that's going to be the place established for my people, the Israelites. And Abraham went. And God said, I'm going to give you descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Well, there is only one problem. Abraham didn't have any kids. (laughs) He called Abram out of this place, took him to this great land. I'm going to make you powerful. I'm going to make you a great nation. And there was this problem that Abraham's like, all right, let's go. But I don't have any kid. Who's going to. And so even took his nephew Lot. I'm guessing that initially he may have been thinking, well, it may be through Lot. I don't know. But then God blessed them with children when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. Is anyone here 90 years old? Willing to admit it. All right. Any 80 year olds here can think about being pregnant. I'm going to take that as a no. Yeah, 90 years old, she's pregnant. She's going to give birth to their son. And so God is going to actually bless them with a son so that he can come through with this promise that he made of making Abraham a great nation. But then after he, they had their son, Isaac, and they were raising him and he's becoming a fine young boy. And God said, all right, Abraham, now I want you to take Isaac and I want to take you, take him up to Mount Horeb. I want you to sacrifice him to me. God, you said you were going to make me a great nation. And finally, you blessed me with a child. We're too old to take care of this kid, but we got this kid. And now you want me to go up and and sacrifice the child. But Abraham, having the faith that he did, he took Isaac. He was ready to sacrifice him to crucify his son, Isaac. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, it tells us why he had such great faith in God that he believed That even though he was about to kill his only son, that God would bring him back to him. He had such great faith in God and the promise. He was assured of the promise that God would give him. He was so assured of the hope that he had in God and the promises that he had that he knew that it's okay if I sacrifice Isaac because God's just going to raise him up to give him to me again. Why? Because he said he'd make me a great nation. This is my son. It has to come from somewhere. And that, brothers and sisters, that's faith. Jesus says, guys, I want you to have this kind of faith. You can say to that mountain, mountain, get up and go into that ocean. That's faith. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, it lists these uh, spiritual gifts. And one of them is having faith. And I had a professor one time tell me, he, uh, he said, you know, all the different spiritual gifts, we can identify kind of what they mean. You know, speaking in tongues, gifts of prophecy, healing. But he said, there's this one that just says the gift of faith, because we're all called to have faith. He said, the only thing that I can figure is that the spiritual gift of faith is having such great faith, like Jesus said, that you could tell a mountain, get up and go get in that ocean. 
That's some serious faith. And Jesus says, if you're going to be ready for the enemy to defend yourself against the enemy, you need to have faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things we can't see. The second thing in our passage of scripture we see is that Jesus says great faith is to say to that mountain, go get in that ocean and then to believe that it'll actually happen. You not only have to have faith, but you need to believe that it'll actually happen. Now, those two are obviously very closely related. I would say it like this, that um, I can uh, have faith that if I stood here and fall off of this uh, off of the structure that uh, Jeff, if I asked him to and I put him right there, um, I can I can believe that he's going to catch me, that he's going to be there because I put him there and then he's going to catch me if I fall. Faith is actually falling. I can believe in who God is, that he created the heavens and the earth, and I can believe that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for me, but not until I live with faith and surrender all to him am I really showing that I have faith. Belief, as we look in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, a great passage of scripture, and Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he writes this letter, and in Romans 10, 10, he says that um, with uh, one's heart, they believe and are justified. With your heart, you believe and are justified. See, belief is much deeper than saying, um, I agree or I believe that to be true, but it's actually believing in your heart that it is true. So we have people that come often and say, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to give my life to Jesus? And I can I can show you in Scripture and I can show you all the different verses of, well, well these are some things that you need to do. You need to confess that you're a sinner. You need to repent from your life of sin. You need to uh, believe who God is. You need to believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. You need to be dipped in a watery grave because we see it in Romans chapter 6 and in Acts 2.38. And we can go through all these motions and you can say the words and we can do the thing and get you all wet and all that. But if you don't believe it in your heart, you're just saying words and going swimming. Right? That's where belief comes in. It's not just enough to have faith and say, okay, it's assurance of things that I hope for, conviction of things that I see, but you actually have to believe. There's a story in Mark chapter 9, if you remember, that Jesus went up on the mountain of transfiguration. Remember that story in Mark chapter 9? And when he came down with Peter, James, and John, they came down to a boy and his dad. The boy was demon-possessed. And the demon was causing him to kind of flop around and go into convulsions and all kinds of things. And the dad said, hey, they can't cast us out. And so Jesus comes up and he's talking with him. And the guy says, if you can, will you help us? And Jesus says, if if I can. You just have to believe. And the man said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And folks, I think that's our prayer every single day is to help our unbelief. Because if I truly believe that God created the heavens and the earth, if I truly believe that God's word is everything that he says in there is true, that I truly believe it, would I really live the way that I live? That's convicting every time I get up. If I truly believed every word of the Bible, would I live with the same lifestyle? If I truly believed everything that was in God's word, why do I work so hard to be first when Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Why, if I believe every word in the Bible, do I work so hard to become wealthy or dream of being wealthy 
when Jesus said it's more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to get through the eye of a needle. And I'm convicted often with this to say, Andy, do you really believe every word that's in God's word? And I pray, Lord, help my unbelief, help my unbelief so that I might do and be the man that you created me to be. So Jesus says, listen, guys, when we're going into Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the enemy. They're going to crucify me. And you need a couple of things. First, you need faith that what I've said is going to happen is truly going to happen. And then you need to believe that it's going to be true. Why would that one be such a difficult thing for the disciples? Well, let's see. We've seen healings. We've seen demons cast out. And we've seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. But we've never seen anybody come back from their own death by themselves. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm turning over my enemies. I am going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. There's going to be a big rock over the tomb. And three days later, I'm actually going to resurrect. And that's going to be a big stretch for the disciples. And Jesus is saying, you have to have such great faith that even you can move mountains. That's how much faith that you need to have. Because you're going to see things and you're going to doubt. But you've got to stay strong and you have to believe. We go on in our passage and Jesus says this in the lesson from the fig tree. Uh, he answered, have faith in God. When it, whoever says this mountain be taken up, thrown in the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that it will come to pass, will be done. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and you, it will be yours. And so we have this whole idea of having faith, believe, and then being people of prayer, being people of prayer. James 5.16 has this great passage about prayer. And in James 5.16, it says the prayers of the righteous person have great power as it as it is working. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, there's a key in there that says the prayer of the righteous person. See, if we take those verses that we just read and kind of isolate them, it might kind of sound like God's this big genie in the sky, doesn't it? We rub our Bible a little bit and out comes this, you know, magic person and he says, hey, ask for whatever you want and you can have it. But the key in being a people of prayer is to be people that are righteous people, people that have given themselves to Jesus, have surrendered themselves to him because the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. The prayers of the righteous can move mountains. I was convicted a couple of years ago um, at our last church. We had a couple of young people. One was a teenager. One was a preteen. And they were battling some um, very difficult health issues, um, things that really could last for their lifetime. And just thinking about that for these families was just devastating to, to consider. And as we got together to, to pray for each of these families individually, I was like, you know what? Why do we pray for comfort, peace, help, endurance, perseverance? When are we going to pray for healing? When are we just going to ask God to heal these two people? He might say no. He may, might say that's not my plan. But how are we going to know unless we ask? And I know that we've all lost loved ones. And it's challenging because you say, but I prayed and they weren't healed. And, and I can't answer why it wasn't in God's plan at that particular time. But all I can tell you is that the prayers of the righteous are powerful. And as we come around together to pray for comfort or for healing or for whatever the case may be, that we are tapped into the greatest power source in the universe, in God, the creator of the universe, that we need to take it to him in prayer. And Jesus tells them, you need to be people of prayer. The prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, right? Our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He taught us how to pray. Jesus says when you pray. He anticipates. He expects. He commands us. Be in communication with God. Yes, He already knows your heart. But we need to be people of prayer. The prayers of the righteous are powerful. Powerful. And effective. And we need to be a people of prayer. So Jesus says to His disciples, we're going into town. You need to be men of faith. You need to be men who believe it's going to happen, will happen. And you need to be praying. You need to be praying. And the last thing that we see in this passage of Scripture, whenever you say, I'm praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven, may He forgive you your trespasses or your sins. And so we have this whole idea, lastly, of forgive. Forgiveness. In Colossians 1.13, there's a passage of Scripture that says, uh, if you have anything against one another, right? You need to for, be forgiving each other as God has forgiven you, so you must forgive one another. And in that passage of Scripture in Colossians 1.13, we have this idea of forgiving. So we're forgiving the things that have happened in the past. We're forgiven by God for the things that we have done and are continuing to do. And we forgive in the future, looking ahead. And I think forgiveness is probably the toughest thing that we're asked to do as a Christian, don't you? Man, it just hurts. People do things against you or harm you in some way, say disparaging remarks. Sometimes they mean it, sometimes they don't. And it just just hurts sometimes. We're human beings with emotions and feelings. And then God says we need to forgive. And just don't feel like it sometimes. Do you? Is there every time that you feel like, okay, I'm going to forgive that person for doing this? It just is difficult to do. But then when I slow down and say, okay, forgiving one another. All right, that's tough to do. But then Jesus pulls us out, and in Colossians, Paul pulls it out as well, as God has forgiven you. And I just need to take a step back and realize that every little sin that I committed separated me from God. And that we're told in Romans that all have sinned, and that the wages of those sin is death. And that except for Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, I wouldn't be able to be with God forever. And that forgiveness was the greatest forgiveness ever to be had. And Jesus is telling his disciples, as we're going into Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, there's going to be 3,000 people that come to know Jesus. And those same 3,000 people are probably going to be among the people that are yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Those same people that you're going to be preaching to may be the ones that are cheering the guards on as they beat Jesus. Standing there jeering him and spitting at him as he's walking down this road, on this path to the place, the hill of the skull to be crucified. And Jesus is saying, guys, you have to have forgiveness in your heart because you're going to see some nasty, awful things. And those same people you're going to need to be preaching to when this time is done. When this time is done. And so Jesus gives these four things of how to be prepared for the enemy, how to get ready for this time that they're about to go into where the enemy is going to have a hold of Jesus and crucify him. All right, let's go to that second passage of Scripture real quick, starting in verse uh, 37, 27. Whew, all right. 
And they came to Jerusalem. So again, back and forth. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, so the Sanhedrin, came to him. They said to him, by what authority are you doing those things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? All right, so this is a large number of people, it would appear. Jesus said to them, excuse me, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, "Okay, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, the author goes on to say they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus intellectually with everything they could muster and all the wisdom that they had and studied God's word. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is what we find out about the enemy, because we must know the enemy. We know that the enemy, we know that the enemy doubts the authority of Jesus. The enemy questions the authority of Jesus. They said, by what authority do you do these things? What things is he doing? He's casting out demons. He's healing people. What authority do you do that with Jesus? Never mind the fact that it's actually happening and that he's giving glory to God. They want to know by what authority that he does it. He questions them. And what's really happening when they're questioning authority? They don't have faith. They lack the faith in God in the promises that God had told them because they studied the same scripture that Jesus has been teaching from. They didn't have faith in what God said he would do. He would do. And they questioned the Messiah's authority. The second thing that we see is that they also question and they don't believe they doubt the enemy doubts where Jesus came from. They don't believe where he came from. He's saying, listen, I'm doing these things from God. I and the father are one. I am from him. And they don't believe where Jesus came from. They don't stop and say, wait a second, we've heard all these rumors about this guy being born to a virgin and investigating that and saying, hmm, maybe there's something to this thing. And looking and studying all the prophets that they had, just like everybody else that have access to the scriptures can study and know that a Messiah is coming. And all these signs are happening all around them, but they didn't have faith that God would send them a Messiah and they didn't believe that Jesus was the one. And that's what we see in the enemy. The enemy doesn't have faith. And the enemy doesn't believe. We see third that after the enemy questions Jesus authority and questions where he came from, we see that the uh, enemy lacks integrity. See, the enemy lacks integrity. What did we say about prayer? We said the prayers of the. That's a question to make sure you're still awake. Righteous, right? Are powerful and effective. And we see that the enemy lacks integrity. They're not righteous men. They lack integrity. Why do we see that they lack integrity? Jesus asked them a question. Tell me what you believe. Now, if I came up and asked you a question and said, all right, just answer me how you believe. Do you think that Jim Caldwell is a good football coach? You have an opinion. You could just say, well, this is what I believe. And Jesus asked them, I'm going to ask you a question. Just answer me. Tell me what you believe. I just want to know. And instead, they shrink back into their holy huddle and they say, all right, well, let's see. If we say this, then this, if we say this, then this. And they lack all integrity to say, we don't know. They know. They don't believe. They do not believe that John the Baptist was from God and that his baptism was from heaven. Because they would have said so if they thought that way. And yes, Jesus may have gotten in their grill about it, but they would have been men of integrity. But we see that they lack integrity. The enemy lacks integrity. 
And so all the prayers that they offered up were not offering up on uh, to God and lifting him up and elevating him and on behalf of the Israelites, but instead they were on the behalf of themselves. In Luke 18, a great story, Jesus tells a parable about two men that go up to the temple to pray. And one's a Pharisee and he goes up with his chest puffed out and he says, Lord, thank you that I'm not a sinner like this tax collector over here. I tithe, I give, I help people, and I'm so glad that I'm one of your servants. And the tax collector is over there beating his chest and can't even lift his eyes to heaven and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, this is the prayer that's going to be answered. The man who has integrity and can pour his heart out before God. And we see that the enemy lacks that. The last thing that we see is that the enemy is going to lead us down a path of unforgiveness. The enemy is going to lead us down a path of unforgiveness. Yes, Jesus offended the Pharisees. He ticked them off. He overthrew their money changing tables. Everything that they were putting together to lift, elevate themselves up to be what they thought closer to God. Jesus came and just turned on its ear. And they weren't about to forgive him. Instead, they were going to wipe him out. They wanted him out of the picture. And that's what the enemy does. The enemy doesn't forgive. The enemy says, you wronged me. I don't want anything else to do with you. I don't want to ever talk to you again. I never want to see you again. And lacks forgiveness. Jesus is going into Jerusalem with his disciples. He's going to be turned over to his enemies. He's going to be crucified for our sins. Laid in a tomb, dead and buried, and resurrect three days later. And he says, guys, we have to be prepared for the enemy. You need to have faith. We've talked about what's going to happen. You need to believe that it's going to be the case and truly will happen. You need to be in prayer. And what do we see in Acts chapter 1? They're gathered in a room and they're praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on them. And guys, you're going to have to forgive. Because the very same people you're going to be preaching the gospel to and asking them to come to know Jesus are the same people that are going to crucify the Savior. See, without an exit, there's without the entrance of an enemy, there's no need for an exit. We don't need an exit strategy. We don't need an exit if there's no enemy that comes into the picture. And we know that the enemy came into the picture in Genesis chapter three, when Satan slithered up next to Eve and says, why don't you eat this fruit? And ever since we've had this battle with the evil one that we read about in Ephesians five, we're told to take on the full armor of God. Now, the third aspect of our exit strategy comes into play, like I was telling you, really on Friday night and what happened in Paris. We can look at what happened at Paris and it can just absolutely scare us to death (laughs) because we see what happens and we say, "Okay, how can we prepare for this enemy? How can we prepare for an enemy that feels that everything that they're doing is for the God that they worship and that they serve? That they feel that their God is telling them that you and I, who don't believe the same way that they are, are infidels and deserve to die. How do you prepare for that enemy? How do we prepare for the exit of this enemy from the world if they have those kind of convictions? And I would tell you that the best way to prepare for this enemy is to prepare for our own exit strategy from this world. We can't tell you what's going to happen one day to the next when you have terrorists that are floating around the world, buying into it for who knows what reason, because Satan has worked inside of their hearts somehow, some way that they would think that other people deserve to die. The only way to prepare for that kind of exit from the world at the hands of an enemy who thinks they believe in this God, but they're not 
following the true, holy, awesome God that we follow is to have faith. Have faith that God created the heavens and the earth and to believe that we're sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus truly is that Savior. To be praying for our unchurched brothers and sisters, neighbors, friends, co-workers, so that if we're faced with this danger that is happening all around the world, that we are all prepared for this enemy to come. And the toughest thing is to have forgiveness in our hearts. Because even the worst terrorist, I'm not supposed to want them to see burning hell. And it's hard not to want that for them because of the things that they do. But we know that God can do amazing things because the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. God can change the hearts, even of this person that's floating around on the Internet that says, I want to join ISIS. I want to go over there that God can work on that person's heart or the neighbor of that person to enter into their life and to talk with them and to help them understand that that's not the God that they think it is. The best way to prepare ourselves for this enemy is to have our own exit strategy straightened out. And that's to have faith in Jesus and to be fully surrendered to him and him alone. I want us to take some time right now, if you will, and uh, we're just going to have a couple of moments of silence and just praying for the city of Paris, the country of France. Pray for the leaders over there. Pray mostly for the families that lost loved ones in this terrible tragedy that took place. And just to ask God to intervene. Ask him to use Christians in that area to be able to speak truth into the lives of the people that are there. And just ask him to make his presence known. That the country of France might come to know with one heart who Jesus Christ is. And after we've had a few moments of silence, I'll, I'll close this in prayer. Father, when a tragedy like this happens, it's it's too easy for the world to just ask why. Why do things like this happen? What could be in the heart of someone to think that it's okay to murder somebody? What's in somebody's heart to think it's okay to end other people's lives? How would they come to this understanding of God that they think that that's what you want? But Father, we know where it comes from. It comes from the battle that we've been in all along since Genesis chapter 3. And that's Satan. He doesn't want us to be with you for all of eternity. He wants to trip us up. He wants to be the obstacle. He wants to turn us around, turn us away from you. So, Father, I pray with all my heart that we all would have this exit strategy for our life straightened out to be assured of the things, of the promises that you've made to us, certain about eternity with you knowing that you will guide us, that you will take us there, that because we've surrendered our lives to you and have accepted Jesus in our heart to know that he is king and he is Lord. And Father, we pray for the people of France. We pray for the families that lost loved ones, Lord, and I I don't know how to console them. All I can ask you to do is comfort them. And I ask that the Christians of that part of the world would show up. And if there's Christians from here that need to go over there to spread the message of the gospel, to give people hope, I pray that it would be done and that we could be a part of that, Father God. And Lord, through this great tragedy, may your name be elevated and lifted up. 
not because these people have a distorted view of you, but for the truth that is you and that you love us and that you sent your son to die for us. And that we don't have to die in vain. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.